Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We now appear to have a mayoral race in the city of Hamilton. A real mayoral race. I know there have been some other people who have put their names forward, but most election watchers, most political observers would say, now that Vito Scro has decided to jump in, we have a legitimate opponent for Fred Eisenberger, someone who really might potentially, possibly give him a run, maybe beat him. Uh, Vito is an accountant. He is a man who has helped organize political campaigns. He's a smart man. He, if you heard him last night here on the show, he's a good communicator. He is also strongly anti-LRT. There are other issues, of course, he's going to speak to, other issues that he believes in. He'll talk about those, I'm sure, as the campaign goes along. He's not, that I know of, a one-trick pony. However, I suspect that based on the discussion that's been going on in the city for a long time now, that's probably going to be the issue that is going to be the centerpiece of an election campaign. And the fact that now there is a seemingly, anyway, legitimate candidate with a clear, distinctly opposite position from the mayor has allowed for a distinction and now makes this election possibly, probably, an election about pro-LRT versus anti-LRT. Brad Clark is not just the principal of Maple Leaf Strategies. He is a former MPP. He is a former cabinet minister. He's a former city councillor. And he actually once ran for mayor as well, as you may recall. More than any of that, though, he is now Hamilton's leading political commentator. We're going to give you that title, Brad, because I think it's accurate. Uh, thank you for joining me tonight. My pleasure, as always. So when I look at Vito Scro jumping into this as the anti-LRT candidate right now against Fred who Eisenberger, who is clearly the very pro-LRT candidate. Am I simplifying the election too much to say that that may be what it's about? No, I, I agree with you. I think that that will end up becoming a ballot question. Uh, when you look at the surveys that have been done in the last few years, it's been almost 50-50 across the board, some supporting LRT, some not supporting LRT. Um, and Vito has clearly put it front and center now uh, in this campaign. Yeah, so we have, as I said off the top, we now have a distinction and we have someone who presumably is in a position based on his background to carry that banner. So you have someone who is a legitimate candidate who could run against Fred Eisenberger and make that the key component to this election. And we have to remember when Fred ran last time, uh, he was not the pro-LRT candidate. He offered a citizen's panel who would make the decision and the review, and he said that he would live with the outcome of that. And shortly thereafter, the money flowed, and that entire process kind of was washed away. So this time, you have Mayor Eisenberger being the pro-LRT candidate, and you'll now have Vito as the anti-LRT, if that's even the right way of saying it. <laughs> well, no, I think that's well. I think that's probably exactly fair because I can't think of anything else that's on the docket. At least as we speak right now, there's still two months before the election, more than two months. But on the docket right now, as we sit here, I can't think of anything else that is going to be as passionate, as divisive, as clarifying an issue as this one. And and it's a, it's probably a good political strategy for Vito to do it in this manner because. The change, uh, the desire for change that we saw in the provincial campaign has really not percolated down to uh, the municipal level. So we don't have that 
big drive from the grassroots saying we got to change this council. Um, so Vito is, is clearly laying out a stark contrast between himself and Mayor Eisenberger, and the voters will decide. And it's very funny that you say those words, because was that not exactly the words that the former Premier Kathleen Wynne used, that, I, I, it, almost to the word? What, what did she say? Wasn't, didn't she say there was the starkest contrast or something yes. along those lines? And basically, in that particular case, it was about something different, obviously, but threw the gauntlet down and said, here's the line. You decide which side of the line you want to be on and made it very clear. You were here or you were there, and it was there were two very opposite positions. And, and, and I think that's where we're going to find ourselves um, with, with Vito running against Fred. Uh, and, and you'll likely see a prediction. You'll likely see um, it, it slowly getting into the local ward scenes, and ward councillors will be asked, well, what are you going to do if the if the Ford government actually lives up to their promise and says that you can spend one billion dollars on your infrastructure? So I, I think this is going to be the pivotal point in the campaign where everyone starts to pay attention to what uh, Premier Ford promised and and how we could utilize that money. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens with some of the councillors who have already supported LRT. Is that a good thing to have one clear? topic as the driving force of an election? I mean, it certainly wipes out a lot of the peripheral stuff and makes it pretty clear what you're voting for. Well, I think if you have a strong ballot question, it does result in in, in better voter turnout. And so uh, historically, municipal elections, as you know, are not great at, at, at getting people out to vote. Uh, but if you have a very stark contrast between two um, uh, polarized individuals, uh, Mayor Eisenberg and Vito Scro, and and they're both well connected in the community. Uh, then that ballot question should theoretically, Scott, drive people to the polls. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's leading political commentator. I'm going to keep repeating that one because you're going to get a shirt made eventually with that I'm one, I'm going Brad. to get a bill. <laughs> well, no, you're going to be able to give a bill. That's what I'm afraid of. You're going to start charging more. Uh, Brad Clark with us, former MPP, former mayoral candidate, chatting about Vito Scro jumping into the prevent- the sorry, the mayoral election. And really, I think, before we carry on, I don't want to be disrespectful to the people who have already put their name in to run for mayor but is it fair to say that he is the first opponent who probably has the wherewithal, the background, the organization, all that kind of thing to take a real run at this? Yes, in fairness to a number of candidates who have put the name forward uh, for mayor, the real challenge uh, in running for mayor in Hamilton today is making sure that you can run a campaign in all of the former uh, municipalities of uh, the Hamilton-Wentworth area. It's a huge area, and that takes a lot of money. And a number of the names that have come forward so far, uh, while they may be able to put some interesting uh, issues uh, to the debates, uh, they will not have the same power, the same oomph, if you will, uh, as a veto scroll. So you have run for mayor before. You ran last time. Um, you know what is involved in doing something like this, and you know how these stories uh, or how the narrative ends up developing. You've lived through that. So if you were running for mayor again, if you were Vito or if you were one of the other candidates running, or if, frankly, if you were Fred Eisenberger, would you spend a lot of time on the other issues? Or would you look at this and say, no, the LRT really is the defining one. And would you put most of your efforts into making that what the election is going to be about? Uh, 
yes, it, w- it would be about the ballot question that, that um, Vito has put forth. Uh, but I, I suspect equally uh, Vito will, will point out um, that uh, the mayor was uh, less than flattering to the, the new premier uh, when he was running and um, picked a fight with Donna Skelly in the middle of that campaign also. Um, and both of those things are things that chief magistrates should not do in a provincial election. You try to stay out of those elections so that you can get along with the senior level of government. So Vito has uh, friends on all sides of the aisle, and, and he will likely use that to his advantage also. Yeah, and again, I go back to the point that I think you made just a moment ago, and, and that was, though, that there's not a great number of people generally that come out these days to vote in a municipal election. And if you can find the one hot spot that will trigger people to want to cast a ballot, seems to me if, if I was running and I've never run, but I would want to keep point, poking the finger at that one and keep getting people, if, especially if they're on the side that you share, getting them more and more antagonized eventually to make them come out and cast a ballot for you. You know, the, the, the more the residents hear of the... Uh, position of a candidate for mayor, it starts to sink in and it starts to resonate. And so I suspect that Mr. Scro, who knows he's run many campaigns, let's not kid ourselves, he's run many provincial campaigns, uh, he knows how to do it. Um, he is a political operative. He really, truly does understand how to make the system work. Uh, so he's going to use that to his advantage. And I suspect that the marketing and the campaign that he will have will be something that, that Fred will not be expecting. It does raise one other interesting conundrum, though, again, if the LRT is one of the defining points of this, and that is I don't see a lot of people with uh, pliable positions on this. It seems to me most people are decided whether they are pro or anti-LRT. I don't see a lot of movement. So how do you, how do you win over the people that don't agree with you? Or at this point, do you just say, you know what, I just believe that there's more people on my side, whichever side you're on, and go with that? It's possible that that's the case, but um, I would suspect someone like Vito would be looking at the soft voters, the people who um, are kind of on the border and need to be convinced that we have other infrastructure needs as well as, um, in his case, BRT. So if his argument is going to be that we can use the money for BRT, we can use the money for roads, uh, he's going to have to answer some hard questions about the infrastructure that was going to be replaced by the province, the pipes, the sewer pipes, all that stuff. Um, but he could argue uh, to those soft voters that we could do more with the billion dollars than just LRT. I'm not sure that's going to resonate, but that's likely going to be his campaign. We have a minute left. What happens at this point? Because we're, no, we're nowhere near yet the election or the cutoff for people to run. What if a third credible candidate, really credible candidate, was to jump in. I don't know who that is. I don't know if there's anybody out there. How much does that change things if suddenly a third person becomes involved? Fred Eisenberger wins the election. Assuming that if person would be anti-LRT. Note, no, it, it, regardless. Regardless, okay. third person of note who comes into the campaign. Remember last time there were three of us and I was pro-BRT, Fred was kind of neutral, and Brian was pro-LRT. Um, and Fred rode up the middle. That is what will happen if there is a third candidate of note with the power to run a good campaign. Um, uh, The incumbent has the advantage. Always interesting. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this again tonight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Uh, the PGA Tour is shuffling its schedule beginning next year, which means that the Canadian Open is being moved from the week after the British Open to the week before the U.S. Open. Now, some of you are saying, well, big deal. They're moving from one week to another, one open to another. Well, no, it is a big deal because this has the potential in a lot of ways to impact, to affect who may come and play in the Canadian Open. This schedule, it's, it's a complex thing and players are human beings. They play, they get tired, they travel. Where they're playing, when they're playing has a big impact potentially on what tournaments they choose to play. Bigger names then here in the Canadian Open can lead to bigger crowds, bigger excitement, bigger interest. Of course, again, this starts next summer when the two, when the schedule officially changes and the first Canadian Open under this new schedule will be here at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. Joining me to chat about this, Bill Paul is the Chief Championships Officer for Golf Canada. Uh, he, uh, he joins me now. Bill, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure. Uh, now, I don't know if I've done a good enough job answering the question or trying to explain why this is such a big deal for people like you and people who are golf fans and people who are watching this. Uh, you want to take a stab at uh, at improving on what I said for why this really matters? Yeah, it is. Um, it, it, it's a big deal not only for the for the RBC Canadian Open but for golf in Canada, and I think as starters. You know, we've had this date, and we've made the best of it. And I think we've done a we've done a great job. We've had success, and we've had some challenges. But overall, I think we've made a we've made a pretty good play on the week after the British Open. However, you know, to move to move into early June just provides the opportunity for um, it's just bigger excitement, both inside the ropes and outside the ropes. And I'll explain. You know, from a from an inside the ropes from a player standpoint. Um, you know, certainly when you get into late July, you get guys start thinking about the playoffs. They've come after a British Open, which isn't exactly, uh, you know, sunshine and 70-degree uh, temperatures all the time. And so, you know, guys get tired. They're going to go into another major. They've got the playoffs coming up. So, and believe it or not, in golf, players still do get tired and players are sore. And so players need need time to rest. Now we're going into, you know, into an earlier time slot. We're going into for players getting prepared for the last two majors that will happen in uh, beginning in 19. And so from our standpoint, we just have a better stretch of, uh, of, of opportunities to attract a large group of players that maybe have not played here consistently, uh, European players that will be coming over for the U.S. Open, etc. So it just sort of opens up that, that, that gate for us. And then when you talk about outside the ropes, you know, certainly from you get away from that really tough holiday season and, you know, someone that's deciding whether they're going to buy a corporate box and entertain 30 people a day may not have 30 people a day to entertain. So he or she goes to something smaller. So we expect to have a larger corporate base, expect to have a larger fan base. I think the event puts us in sort of the the beginning of that big festival event season and certainly in the you know the greater Hamilton Toronto area, certainly in southwestern Ontario, including Niagara, so it just it just puts us at the forefront. So when you're making decisions on on where to go, it's um, it's just nice to have the RBC Canadian Open open up front. And I think you know just a bigger open means means bigger assets for the game to grow the game to get people involved in the game at all levels and across the country. So. Um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to find a downside in it. It was big news, big news that we've been waiting for for a long time, 
And, uh, you know, it's great that we're going to start it at a club that we've had great success at. And uh, so we're looking forward to uh, kicking it off at Hamilton next year. Your part of your job, a big part of your job, is being tasked with actually finding the field, is luring the guys to come over here and play in the Canadian Open. Because of the challenges with it being the week before in Britain, you've had to do some interesting and some creative things to try and convince them, some of them, that they want to come here. Talk about some of the things that you've had to do to try and make it easier for them to decide to play in Canada. Well, beg. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for the starters, it's um, you know it's just you know it's really the golf courses that we that we've been to. I think we've you know when you look at having been in Hamilton in this date in twelve and a golf course like like St George's, they've certainly been favorites. Uh, so Hamilton will be an easier task force. But I mean, I mean the big thing we did was was we started a charter, and uh, I mean I mean if we didn't have that on there, we typically have thirty three to thirty seven players on there plus families, et cetera. So if we didn't have that, I'm sure we'd get about about half half or less of that. Um, I mean, we've created concert series. We've done things with players in terms of uh, of families and activities. But, you know, those are kind of things that we'll still do, Scott, whether we're in June or September. So it, it, it's... It's the big thing we did was was really the plane to get the, to get players o- over here, and so you know as we look at at the U.S. Open, the plane is not out of the realm of possibilities in terms of player enhancements. Do we look at at doing that same thing? You know, the U.S. Open in nineteen is in Pebble Beach, so let's see, it's on the West Coast. But that's not insurmountable, and it doesn't worry any player going from you know East to West Coast anymore. But it just may be an option that we do for. Um, you know, just to enhance our field and, and, and a little player benefit as well. The first thing I'm sure you've been asked, I'm sure you hear this a lot, is what do we have to do? Well, does this mean that Phil and Tiger are going to be coming, among others? I'm sure yeah. you've heard. I'm sure you've heard that already. Uh, what do you? How do you answer that? Well, I think in 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 both there's have having conversations with uh, both of them, and uh, um, you know, I've had a conversation with Tiger, you know, recently in Columbus, Ohio, and. Um, you know, I know, I know he's always said that he would come back. It just has to fit into a schedule. And, and both those guys are pretty famous for after the British Open, they just fly home and, and they're with family or friends. And, um, you know, they just shut it down until they have to start up at that net, the next major or what was the World Golf Championship. So, I mean, I think it gives us a great chance. Uh, certainly the tour is more than those two guys now. It's, uh, there's just a lot of young, great players out there. And, uh, if we can get both, both those guys in their, in their years, they'd still be big for the tournament. But, you know, we, we feel what we've done so far and the opportunities that we're going to have in 19 and beyond, it's going to be, uh, it's going to pay dividends for, you know, for us, but mainly for the fans of the sport of the game. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of changes coming, mainly based on the schedule, which should open up a lot of things, a lot of possibilities for the Canadian Open beginning next summer when it arrives here in Hamilton at Hamilton Golf and Country Club. Bill Paul uh, joining us, who is the Chief Championships Officer for Golf Canada. Uh, and Bill, yesterday at the press conference when this came up, there were a number of people, including Adam Hadwin, a great Canadian golfer, mm-hmm. who talked about bringing the Canadian Open back to the, and they used this word stature that it once had. It was it, That was their word, but is it a fair word? Is that a fair goal to be shooting for? Well, I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, I know what he means, and I mean, I've always heard the fifth major, but in all my travels to every other tournament, Everybody at one time claims that they were the fifth major. So <laughs> I, just, you know, I just think we just live in a world that's you know evolved from the '60s and everything that that we do. Um, certainly, the Canadian Open had some had some stature 
um, you know, certainly before World Golf Championships and majors really took a height, uh, you know, jump up in their stature with television, etc. So, I mean, I, I think you're looking to be competitive. I think you're looking to be a top tournament, and I think that's what we can expect to be. Um, you know, we've got a great sponsor in RBC. Um, that's that's the first uh, element of creating a successful tournament. Uh, their commitment to um, you know, not only the game of the professional side, but to what they they commit to the amateur side, our national team, the development program, et cetera, is just, it makes them, there's no equal of them, in, uh, certainly in this country. And so, you know, as we work together, our goal is to, is to, is to elevate the tournament. Our goal is to, is to make it a, uh, you know, a top tier event that players, that players don't want to miss. And so I think we have a lot of the elements, you know, we're, we're creating a venue strategy of where we're going to play the open. That is key. The date is key for the players. And if there are two elements that are going to make a difference, it's going to be date and schedule and the players, uh, you know, when, when he, when he chooses where to play. Well, and, and again, not to get too cute or too quirky or anything along those lines, but it was also mentioned yesterday that now that you have back-to-back North American National Championships, Canadian Open followed by U.S. Open, there's some interesting possibilities, perhaps, sure. for something with that that would, again, seemingly elevate the Canadian Open back. I mean, it's the fourth oldest t- tournament on tour. Sure. It, it, it's more than just the Hoboken Open or something like that. I mean, and, sure. so it, it, there's opportunities there. Yeah, I mean, it's still a, it's still our national championship, and it's still a... It's still a national championship that's recognized around the world. So, you know, having spent some time over in over over the Open Championship and with the European Tour, it still gets a lot of accolades on how it's respected when you're on that side of the pond. So, I mean, I I, I think the opportunities too that it, that it gives the event itself is, I mean, people can talk about this old Triple Crown that you know Lee Trevino and Tiger Woods <laughs> have won, but it's still something that's out there. It's still something that intrigues players. Um, but the other element is, you know, just being a national sport body and a and a world golf body. We have a relationship with the United States Golf Association, with the Royal and Ancient overseas, and so the things that you can do with the Open in terms of does the winner or the top five players qualify to get into the U.S. Open and then get into the British Open, uh, you know, a, a month later. So you know, just just connecting those three organizations mm. together just just provide one more incentive that a player is going to think about because they all want to play in majors. They all want to, they all want to better their, their position. And so again, that June date just gives us something that uh, late September did not, or late uh, July did not. I loved the, the triple crown. Uh, I'm not so sure I want to see that particular trophy come, <laughs> come out again. It's an interesting yeah. trophy. I don't know where it is right now, hopefully hidden well, but um People who have seen it yeah. know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, yeah. oh, nonetheless, yeah. uh, d- just before we wrap up here, because yeah. one of the things, again, this begins, this change happens the first year that this is going to be is next year when the tournament is in Hamilton and Hamilton Golf and Country Club. Everybody who's been around here knows that when the tournament has been held here, Hamilton has received raves from most of the players on tour. Does it still carry that kind of place-to-play label among the tour yeah. when you talk to guys? Yeah, you know, one of the one of the great things is that I've had to do is when you announce a place like Hamilton to players and and players automatically, you know, left up guys like Jim Furyk have been great ambassadors to the golf club. Uh, and so, you know, we haven't been there and it'll be seven years since we were last there. But, 
Um, you know, we're going to try and get some guys over, over there this week when the Open's on and just sort of see if guys that can go back and talk about it to their fellow competitors. We'll do a good job of selling Hamilton out on tour this year and all, and all next year. So, I mean, Hamilton will do it. Hamilton has been really successful. The city has been, has been just wonderful to partner with in terms of, uh, of, of, of access and getting around and promoting the Open. So, I mean, Hamilton, golf course and venue, the municipality, et cetera, it's just provide a wonderful canvas to uh, stage a great open on. And we've had successful ones in September. We had a successful one in 2012 when it was in July. And I have no doubt that a June date will be, will will exceed all three of those. Bill Paul, Chief Championships Officer for Golf Canada. Really appreciate it, sir. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Scott, thank you. I didn't mention starting that one that Bill is, uh, Bill was playing on the weekend. I saw him yesterday at the press conference tweaked his back, and I don't think tweaked is probably a fair word. Bill was in agony yesterday, and I'm sure he was doing that interview in agony. The bane of any golfer is the bad back, and uh, so I appreciate him coming on and doing this. He may have been horizontal. (laughs) He may have had a massage going on while it was happening to try and get through, but anyway, it it is exciting news because of the possibilities for who may end up here in Hamilton Next year, it's always one of the great events. Whether you're a golf fan or not, a diehard, it's always one of the great events when it comes to Hamilton because of the course, because of everything that goes on. Suddenly you open up the door to a bunch of players, bigger name players, guys that even the average casual golf fan goes, oh, I know who that is. Big opportunities here. Big changes coming and big opportunities for what could be next summer, 2019, June 3rd to 9th, if you want to put it on your calendar now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bubba O'Neill, not from the States, just finished doing a sports cast here on CHCH. Uh, happy 4th of July, sir. Uh, happy uh, Nathan's hot dog eating contest. Oh, man. We're, we're going to be tackling that one tomorrow here on the show <laughs> uh, in, a, in a spectacular way. But, um, yeah, 74 hot dogs in 10 minutes for Joey Chestnut. New world record, and uh, it's amazing. It it really is. That's a word. That's a word for it. No, it's it's the gluttony, the the the, but yet the mastery of it all. Here's what I said to Ted Michaels as we were chatting about this before I came on the air tonight. Even if, because it was he was averaging, I think it works out to about a hot dog every seven seconds that he was consuming, something like that. Even if I had the capability to find the storage space in my gullet for that many. Uh, my jaw would break before I, I, I wouldn't be able to chew fast enough. Even if you had a, a thing that it could go down my throat and fall into a bag off to the side so it wasn't filling me, I could not possibly chew and consume anything that quickly. It, it, it really is amazing. I mean, I know they soaked them to make it a somewhat easier, but to, to, to consume that much food. And then when you do the nutritional breakdown. I, I, that's know, a, that's a, it, there's nothing nutritional <laughs> about you know, 22, it. 22,000 calories in 10 minutes, 1,300 grams of fat, 54 grams of salt, you know, but on the bright side, 74 grams of fiber. <laughs> that's not a bright side. I don't want to be anywhere near that man the day after. <laughs> Could you, um, they're going to have to, they'll have to, uh, I don't know what you do. His, his bathroom becomes a designated disaster zone. Uh, the, you know, and, and to think that this is for him, it's not a yearly thing. I mean, it's, yes, it's the annual contest, but he's a member of the competitive eating tour, you know? So, you know, different events are happening. Sometimes it's hamburgers. 
Sometimes it's scrambled eggs. Uh, of course, there's wings at the Super Bowl, Wing Bowl in Philadelphia, which is huge. And I've also seen one that is a com- in the competitive eating tour that it's mayonnaise. That's. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking that the worst one might be asparagus because of what it would do to your pee the next day. But the mayonnaise would be just... Okay, so we got to move off this one. But if you if you had to enter one competitive eating discipline, which again seems like an oxymoron if ever was there was the gluttony being a discipline seems like the wrong thing. But if you ever had to enter a contest, what would the food be that you would want to have to eat? It'd have to be wings. Uh, you know, there, uh, it would definitely have to be wings. I would find that the easiest to probably to to, to work on. Um, you know, it's just not so huge. Yeah, I don't know. Ice cream. Ice cream Ooh, would be mine. Oh, the sugar would kill me. Well, yeah, that and, and the, the freezing headaches every that few too. seconds would do you in. The other one that I saw Joey Chestnut do by video today, because, of course, everyone was putting out Joey Chestnut videos, was in December he did 12 pints of beer in 75 seconds. Is <laughs> that possible? Well, first of all, he would have the most distended bladder in the history of oh. any human human person. But you would, that's so fast that it wouldn't have given time for the alcohol to kick in. So all of a sudden it would have been this one giant drunk bomb that would have fallen on him. Oh. Anyway. Well, I, I, don't, I don't drink beer because you feel so bloated after just one. Yeah, 12 in a minute and 15 seconds. Spectacular. Well, again, odd word, but okay. <laughs> it's something. Anyway, let us move on to a different sure. sporting event if we can, because there are people right now who are probably either burping or feeling sick just listening to this. I would argue that what we have seen in the World Cup so far may be one of the top two or three, in my lifetime anyway, top two or three World Cups that we've seen as far as excitement, as far as games, as far as scoring, as far as a lot of other things about that. You on board with that? It's not, you are so correct with that. I mean, for my, you know, obviously sports has been a part of my life for a very, very long time. And there are, you know, in my household, there were, you know, I'm going to say a number of events, and I will name the Super Bowl, the Grey Cup, Wimbledon, and the World Cup as something that was a family thing for me that I can remember watching for as, I, and I, as, far, as far as I can go back. And I don't remember ever seeing this kind of excitement, drama, late goals, offensive showing. In the round of, you know, in the opening round, every team scored at least one goal. Only one scoreless game in the entire tournament, that, which is obviously a record. Uh, yeah, and, and no, and that's and that's look. That is the best part about this because the the stereotype or the whatever you want to say of soccer is uh, nobody scores, and so for and, and sometimes it's based on truth. I mean that that has happened a lot in World Cup games. It seems that the teams that qualified this year were not the teams that decided to just play a super defensive style, and that's. For the better of the tournament, quite frankly, it really, I know some people will say, yeah, my team didn't get in. We play it that it's not about which particular team I'm talking about the style. It has made it a much more exciting tournament. Yeah, it really has been. And, you know, and seeing so many giant countries, um, you know, bow out at this stage of the tournament and even the ones that are still alive pushed to the absolute limit. Look at England. Um, 
thought they had the game in the bag and Colombia come back with a goal. But that was time. so that was so England World Cup. I w- I'm shocked they won because if there's one thing England in soccer does better than anyone else, it's torture their fans. Yeah, they, it's they, absolutely torture the fans for sure. and find ways that are the most painful possible to do something to have something happen. So gr- I'm happy for the English fans that they got to experience some joy because in recent years it's been not that. Well, just getting rid of that penalty kick. I mean, they had never won a game of yeah. kicks ever. I mean, great England. I mean, I know it's been since 1966 when they hosted and, and won the tournament, but I mean, you would think somewhere along the line they would have won a game in kicks, but they've lost some big games to some, you know, some very good teams over the years. But we've, okay, so we've got Germany out, defending champs. Spain is out. Uh, Portugal out. Argentina out. Italy was never in. Netherlands were never in. So uh, that's 11 of the 20 World Cup championships so far accounted for as being already out of the tournament. And as you say, many of the big, big star teams, is that good or is that bad to have those, the giants gone? I think it's great. I mean, because you still have enough giants that are still in the tournament where interest is still there. And what I have found in just discussing, you know, with a lot of people of some of those, you know, that, you know, are of those heritage that the tournament has been so exciting that they will still continue to watch. And, you know, as we talk about the people that, you know, got eliminated, let's not forget that teams like the United States and Italy didn't even qualify. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you say everyone will still watch, except in the States where viewership is down 42% because the Americans aren't in, but that's that's in the States. I'm sure, I'm sure that in Italy there is immense, for example, and I say Netherlands, there's immense disappointment, but I'm betting you're right that they are still watching there. Yeah, it's the high quality of the tournament. And plus, this is something that, you know, for those countries, that this is, um, I'll use this loosely, it's their Super Bowl. Sure, sure it is. That said, and, and as I say, I want to be as complimentary as possible because I think this has been an outstanding World Cup. However, there are two things that still, I think, soccer, football, FIFA, whatever you want to call it, needs to figure out. And the first one is... And, and and I know I'm not a traditionalist, and I know that the soccer purists are going to go out of their minds. There's got to be a better way to decide a playoff game than penalty kicks. There has to be a better way. There just has to. Be. I understand a regulation game uh, because you can't play forever, but there's got to be a better way than penalties for an elimination game. You know what? What? What do you suggest then, Scott? I mean, because I've heard this, you know, a lot of times, and I think this is basically a North American way of thinking. Soccer has been like this for many, many years. I mean, heck, you play 120 minutes, 120 minutes. And, 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 you know, in Russia, they've had some days where it has been, you know, just like here, what we've experienced here, you know, the temperatures in the very high 20s to 30s. I understand. I understand. You can only go for so long. I completely understand that. And maybe it is a North American thing. And I, part of me is that I, I hate turning games into skills competitions. I hate it when, uh, in anything, in, in soccer, in, your, in international hockey when they do this. And I'm thinking, okay, how do you do this, maintaining the integrity of what the game is all about and keeping it to something that actually happens in the game? Because we, even though I know that penalties happen in the game, it's not all the time. And I thought, would it really be offensive to take a player or two off the field every 10 minutes in extra time to open things up and see if that would, would, would that, would that, would that make the purists go out of their minds if it was nine aside for 
20 minutes of extra time to see if that would open the game? Well, then, you know, I would say to you, then it, it's still another gadget, Scott. That's just still another gadget. Like, yeah, but it's mean, much closer to the game being decided in the game than it is. Is it? Think, sure, think it is. If it turns into seven on seven. No, 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 I'm not, no, no. And, I'm not and, talking about. I'm not talking about that because I really believe that if you took it down to nine on nine, there's so much open field that something would happen pretty quickly. Okay, so here's my thing. You go. You play 120 minutes, then you go to nine on nine or eight on eight or whatever you choose to be. How much like? How much more can these people possibly have in the tank? And I'm no, and I'm saying when you start the extra time after your 90 minutes are done for the 30 minutes, right? The first t- 10 minutes are 10 on 10, and then you go down to nine on nine for the last 20, and then maybe then you do it like the NHL does, I suppose, and you say, okay, you know, you're right. You can't kill these guys. You can't make them run for seven hours. So then, if all else fails, you go to the shootout, but. Uh, there's been such good soccer that you hate to see it stop to just go to a bunch of kicks. That 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 to me as a just it seems like such a disappointing way. And if I'm if I'm Colombia and frankly, I thought Colombia deserved to lose not just for their play but because of their actions and because of their everything else. But nonetheless, they, they if I'm rough. if I'm Colombia, I'm feeling pretty ripped off that I'm out of the World Cup because of free kicks. Uh, they, the, Colombia don't feel ripped off because that's the way soccer is. And for those countries and everywhere outside of North America, they accept that that is the way a soccer game is decided. And in some cases, I don't think we've seen much of it in this tournament, some teams will, will, will be willing to go to kicks. They'll play. That, that's what I mean. On, on no, exactly. And say, let's go to kicks, we'll solve it this way. So they're and okay I hate with that. It. And they're okay with it. The countries that lose are okay with it. And again, I just think this is a pure North American way of thinking. And we live in North America, so it's acceptable. There's no doubt about it. But I think we're the only ones barking about it. Because that's the way soccer is. And that's, that, that's just... That's, and I'm okay with it. And in fact, you talk about this, and I'll be honest with you, in the newsroom here, around, I got here in the sports section... I have six screens in front of me that, you know, with different things on it. Behind me, for the first time all year, was pretty much everyone in the newsroom for the England-Columbia uh, shootout. And let me tell you, the volume could have been, of, of everyone could have been heard outside the building. So it was. I you got to tell Taz I, to keep it down during those games. You know, you know what? <laughs> Taz might have been the only one not here. <laughs> Taz was the only one still working. Everyone else, male, Nicole Martin. I could go on and on. We're even because she's she's British. She was so she was going insane. Everyone was going crazy here. Everyone enjoyed it and found it thoroughly exciting. And I have to admit that I did too. Mm. Uh, so, well. I, I found it exciting in the way that, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, lining someone up for a shooting gallery is exciting, uh, I suppose. Did, did, like, did, it's you not, not, did you not enjoy the Croatia shootout on Sunday? The, I, mean, I just I, don't love shootouts. I, I find them to be, you're, you're, this, with the size of the soccer net, you're basically asking someone to hit the ocean from the beach. But I mean, that's, here's the thing, in that, in that Croatia game, in that Croatia game, of the five, of the ten shots, each goaltender made three saves. Yeah, I know. Look, I know. And and I, I'll tell you something else. I was, I shouldn't have thought this, 
But based on what happened in 1996, 98, whenever it was, when the Colombian guy hit the crossbar in the shootout yesterday and missed, the first thing that went through my mind was, I hope that guy is safe when he goes home. Because remember what happened to Escobar? <laughs> yep, yeah, the guy who scored an own goal a few yep. years ago, and he was assassinated when he went home. And I was like, I, 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 you know, I sincerely hope that I'm just, the times have changed. But I thought, I hope that guy is safe when he makes it home. Oh, no, I agree with you. I agree with you because, I mean, this is, you know, we, we take our hockey very seriously like at the Olympics and on a national basis and, of course, the, on a yearly basis, the Canadian World Juniors, but not to the extent. This is, again, this is big time. This is big time. And remember, the, these countries don't have, look at us. We have, look at me right now. I'm watching MLS, MLB, uh, two MLB games. Like, there's just endless sports, right, for these people. It's soccer and soccer alone. Yep. So yep. That, that World Cup, at seeing their countries on the world stage, there is nothing more important. The other thing that I wish that FIFA, soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, could find a way to fix, and I think there's an easy answer, and I've said it on the show before, but Columbia yesterday... Uh, and this has got nothing about Colombian people. If a Colombian person, it's not about you, the team and other teams in this tournament, it's been a disgrace, some of the acting and flopping and diving. And we've seen less of it in this tournament. We've seen less of it. But the teams that are doing it, it's like they've taken, they've been practicing their performing arts. And Neymar, who's one of the great players in the yeah. world right now, is an embarrassment. He is an embarrassment to the sport. And I'm looking at this saying, how can FIFA sit back and continue to allow this stuff with no repercussions, can allow this kind of performance to be going on? If I'm a fan of Colombia, I am ashamed of the way my team behaved. If I'm a fan of Neymar, I am ashamed of his performance. And yet, and yet, there are people who clearly are obviously supporting it, saying, hey, he's doing what he has to do to help his team win. They've got to figure out a way to get this out well, of the game. They have cut it down. I mean, there there is now yellow cards for simulation, and this never sometimes, happens. You know, sometimes, sometimes. And, and but uh, what Neymar did was, uh, I'm going to go into the category of shameful. And it was for one, of, for one of the great players of the game worldwide. His abilities are outstanding. He scored a goal. He, I mean, he's just been unreal. He, he's been unreal offensively. But to do what he did now. Did a player step on him? And remember, these are some of these players are wearing you know metal cleats and 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 put stepped into his ankle. But to see the flipping and flopping like he was a you know a wounded fish was you know uh, quite honestly like I said he should be ashamed of himself. And yes, there we see this in the National Hockey League trying to embellish to get a call, uh, but. What we did see there was, you know, just, it's not, and again, players like that, of that greatness, are responsible for growing the game and keeping it, you know, maintaining the integrity of the game. And what he did there is really, uh, I I thought have been, I thought should have been punished somehow. If you do this in the NHL, and you're right, some guys do it, but if you do this in the NHL, maybe not guys on your team, although possibly, but other guys will call you on it. You will be embarrassed by well, your Scott, colleagues. You're, Scott, you're fine. If, if, if the referee doesn't call you for simulation in the National Hockey League, the, the, play, the play can be reviewed later and guys get the letter in the mail. For, for, for well, and, and are fine. And here's the thing. So there have been a couple people, a couple players, significant players of the past. Um, uh, who was it? Uh, Shearer. Alan Shearer, former England forward, called out Neymar. He was doing a game on British TV, I guess, on English TV. Uh, the response to that, Ronaldo, who's one of the great Brazilian players of all time, 
says, uh, I don't think referees have been protecting him enough. They're actually saying to Neymar, we're behind you. Go do more of this. Neymar's rolling and gesticulating and acting is so big now. There are memes being made of him rolling down <laughs> highways and rolling here. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And again, we, the, the fact is, Baba, that FIFA, I understand that we are North Americans joining the soccer party late. I get that. But as you are continuing, now that you have television that beams across the world, although that's not exactly new, and as you're growing the sport more and more and more, and you want, it's becoming a global game, I think FIFA has a responsibility to say, this is not what we are endorsing as a way the game is going to be played. And there are ways, there are simple ways they could start to get this out. But they don't want to do it. They clearly don't, or else this thing could be gone in five minutes. Yeah, but they don't want it. They don't want a red card Neymar for rolling, for doing five barrel rolls. They're no, after, no, sorry, no, you're no, out no, of the no. game. I think, I think you do exactly as the National Hockey League does, and that's finding them later, right? And because you take, as you said, there's cameras everywhere. You can, uh, you can just look at the video and, and say, okay, boom, done. Like you're, you're going to find this is simulation, you know, because 30 seconds later, you're up running, the, you know, sprinting as hard as you possibly could, right? So, yeah, I think that's... Maybe do, maybe do something even like the CFL or NFL have done, and that is if you go down and you are injured, you must leave for a certain period of time. So you have to step off the field and stay off the field for five minutes or something. Well, that sure. would stop it too. I mean, but there's, there's so many ways that you could do something about this. Yeah. That you could mind. take... The World Cup is... Again, it's been a fantastic tournament. It's been a great tournament with these little parts in it that you say, man, if they could just find a way. If you, you, Soccer is growing massively in North America, but the one thing that still drives people in this continent, and it's a huge part of the world and it's a huge amount of the world's money, that soccer, that FIFA wants to get involved in the game, one of the things that drives everybody nuts is this. I, I will say this. I do believe that they've done a better job. I mean, I, I think it's improved. I mean, I, I, I mean, anyone who's been watching world soccer for a long time, I think, can say to that. But it was, it was awful. Like, I mean, a decade ago, it was, you know, it was, it was so bad. So I think, I don't know if it's an integrity thing. I don't know if it's a coach thing. I don't know if it's just players realizing that, you know, they look like idiots, you know, when you're flopping around on the ground. And, and again, we were, unfortunately, because it, it, it hasn't been that bad. This, this, I don't think it's been that bad. There have been definitely Many of the teams, no, many of the, the teams haven't done it. Many it, of the teams have the been... the Neymar thing, just put it right back, you know, you know in the forefront, quite yeah. honestly. No, many of the teams have really, uh, like, again, Germany, England, I haven't seen it. There are teams that are notorious for it, and there are teams that aren't. I'm not saying there's countries that are. I'm saying there's players on teams Mm -hmm. that just do this, and I think that when certain players do it, it opens the door for other players to do it. Um, You know, I I, I say it it is less. It is less. We've talked about this more in other ones, but I think that FIFA could deal with this very quickly, and it would be gone, and then we wouldn't be talking about it every World Cup. Hit them in the pocketbook like everyone else, right, in in sport, and that's... That's the only way to do it. Make yourself accountable, right? Because, uh, like I said, the the finding of uh, of a uh, having a some type of tribunal or whatever the case is that can look at tape after and say, "Hey, this is the situation. You are you have now been fined five thousand dollars or whatever the fine would be, because we've looked at the tape and you were totally you know playing games here." Well, and, uh, yeah, we got to run. But the other one, and I mentioned this before, they use VAR, this new replay. They they love yeah. this new replay. 
So you've got people watching on replay. It's very simple. Already we've had calls come down to the referee for penalties that he missed. And so now they're telling the ref, no, that was actually a penalty kick. You got to give it. You do the same thing with this. If you spot a guy who clearly, unquestionably dove, you call down and you say that guy gets at a first offense red card. And you know what? The diving would stop like that. It would I, stop like that. It's hard not to argue with you, Scott. And, you know, I mean, again, it's, it is one of the issues with the sport. And as you said, as this game becomes more and more global, and, you know, there was a lot of time where maybe FIFA and maybe uh, other countries believe that, you know, we don't need North America to, to grow the game. But the reality is you do. You do have an MLS. You do have a World Cup coming to, the, you know, to, to North America and Mexico very, very soon. So, uh, yeah, you got to clean that stuff up. Bubba O'Neill and his six screens. Appreciate you doing it tonight, sir. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.